The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. And as this is our Vice Presidencies of the United States special series, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you again for having me, Jerry. It's good to be here today. So before we get started, Alex, how are you feeling? I'm feeling much better. So uh, for those who may be connected to Jerry on his social media, I had a pretty serious car accident a few nights ago. And I'm just so thankful to be here, um, relatively unscathed, just a bit sore, mainly above the ground. Um, it was a pretty shaking incident, literally. Um, and I just, I just realized how lucky I'm to be alive. So thank you for uh, having me and just letting me be here. I'm very glad to have you here. And, you know, so glad to have you safe. And, and I mean... You had to be here for Burr Part Two, you know. Come on, in the saddle, and I guess I had a burr in the saddle of my car <laughs> That's what me from going through the windshield. You know, you know, car wreck, train wreck. It kind of fits with our theme today. No, it was just a precursor to our recording today. Yes, <laughs> because the Burr Vice Presidency is going to crash and burn. Oh. That was a tough one. That's a tough one. Here we go. Here we go. So, Alex, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded Burr Part 1. So what do you remember about what we covered in that episode? Well, he had a very tough personal life, a lot of loss. Kind of felt sorry for him, you know, given the circumstances. But knowing how things end up, it's like, wow, you can kind of understand. But then in a way, it's like, wow, it. I don't know. He had a really rough go of it, for sure. Had a rough go of it, but also on this political rise and starting to make enemies. And we already saw in the first episode how some of Burr's story has been written by the victors, has been written by the folks who, at the end of the day, when the political battles were done, they were still left standing versus his reputation was already bad and they made it worse and believe you me that's going to continue as we go along so we left off burr through the election of 1800 you know it was the disputed election took 36 ballots but finally it was decided jefferson was going to be president burr was going to be vice president and so that's where we left off last time so we're going to pick up with vice president-elect aaron burr So he stopped first on his way to the nation's capital in Baltimore, Maryland, where he visited with his daughter, Theodosia, and his new son-in-law, Joseph Alston. So we talked about towards the end of the last episode that Theodosia got married. She was worried about his finances, and Joseph Alston was this rich man from South Carolina, rich plantation owner. And so she got married in order to bring this wealth into the family. So he stops to visit with his daughter and son-in-law and then received a warm reception by citizens before proceeding on to Washington, D.C., where he arrived on March 1st, 1801. According to Burr biographer Milton Lomask, 
It seems that Theodosia and Joseph were in Washington for the inauguration with Burr, but I haven't been able to confirm that. I also haven't been able to confirm where he stayed while in Washington, but it was likely in one of the few boarding houses close to Capitol Hill, as there was very little lodging to be had, which was one of the many issues that folks had with the nation's new capital city in its early days. So this is right when the capital moved to the banks of the Potomac, to this ramshackle, trying to be a city, but really wasn't yet. Settlement on the swamp, basically. Settlement on the swamp, yes. So this is the Washington that he's coming to. On Inauguration Day, March 4th, Burr was sworn in first and delivered a brief speech of, quote, about three sentences, which does not seem to have been preserved in the newspapers. It was that unmemorable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Upon Jefferson's arrival at the Capitol, Burr offered up his seat to the president-elect, and in what Burr described as a, quote, serene and temperate ceremony, Jefferson was sworn in and delivered his inaugural address, which... Of course, it's the famous, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. So that one went in the history books, but Burr's three sentences didn't make it. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. With the inauguration done, the work of the new Senate began. With Burr presiding, the Senate in the special session that March confirmed the first of Jefferson's new appointees. James Madison as Secretary of State, Henry Dearborn as Secretary of War, Levi Lincoln as Attorney General, and Chancellor Robert Livingston from Burr's home state as the U.S. Minister to France. So patronage was a key discussion in those early days as the change in faction in the executive branch was seen as an opportunity to reward Democratic-Republican supporters with one of the over 300 positions available for the new president to appoint. So let's go ahead and put this into context. This is the first time that there's not going to be a Federalist president. Mm. You know, we have our first change in faction in terms of the presidency. And even though we think of the federal government today much, much larger, At the time, there were 300 positions that they could fill, and so the president has this power to start rewarding people for supporting him. Jefferson, however, saw things a bit differently. Though he would remove some of the most partisan of Federalists and would appoint a new cabinet to replace the one from the Adams administration, so he didn't follow Adams' example and kept the old cabinet on, he was like, I want my folks in. But Jefferson also didn't agree with the idea of what came to be known as the spoil system to, without question, remove every Federalist from office. So he said, you know what? I mean, some of these folks are doing a good job. Why would I replace them? Mm-hmm. Burr, on March 17th, drafted a memorandum for Jefferson recommending candidates for appointments in New York, Connecticut, and South Carolina. With this recommendation, some key allies did receive appointments including John Swartwild as U.S. Marshal, Edward Livingston as U.S. District Attorney, and David Gelston as Collector of Customs in New York. With Connecticut, with his uncle Pierpont Edwards providing an additional push, 
Jefferson did finally agree with Burr's arguments that a full sweep of offices should be made in that state in order to counteract the overwhelming Federalist control there and to give support to the nascent state Democratic-Republican faction. So at this point, Connecticut was the Federalist hotbed. The Federalists had control of everything in Connecticut. And Jefferson finally agreed, yeah, we do need to be a bit partisan with this. We, if we're going to have, if we're going to start making some inroads in Connecticut, this is the way to do mm-hmm. it. Once the congressional short session was done, Burr returned home to New York, dividing his time between his Richmond Hill estate and a townhouse that he owned on Broadway. There, he would have to wait for word as to whether his recommendations had been accepted by the president. Federal patronage was the only tool that Burr had at his disposal to ensure that he retained political power in New York because in May 1801, George Clinton was returned to the governorship of that state and he appointed his nephew DeWitt to the Council of Appointment, which awarded the state patronage. And so we talked a a bit in the last episode about, you know, you've got these factions, you've got the Clintonians, you've got the Livingstons, you've got Burr with his faction that are all trying to compete for power in the state of New York. Well, Burr, now that he's vice president, he really doesn't have any power. And so this becomes a problem Mm -hmm. because naturally DeWitt, who was also this up-and-coming political figure, he wanted to use this position and this council of appointment to help further his ambitions, which meant... Burr is out of it. Mm. And that won't stand, will it? No. DeWitt was not going to offer any positions to Burr supporters. And instead, he turned to the Livingston faction. He wanted to bring them into his fold along with, of course, the Clinton faction. And so the sitting vice president was isolated politically in his own home state. Ooh, that's got to be rough. Yeah. Meanwhile, a leader in the Livingston faction, John Armstrong, who was also Chancellor Livingston's brother-in-law, had started making overtures to Jefferson when the two found themselves in the same boarding house in Washington during Armstrong's brief tenure in the U.S. Senate. And so for those of you who are regular listeners, you know that we covered John Armstrong in a Seat at the Table series. He had quite a storied life himself. And all of these figures, all these New York politicos, are interacting with one another and on the federal and state level trying to make inroads for themselves. And so Armstrong at this point was doing the same. So the president and Armstrong were on good enough terms that Jefferson asked for Armstrong's opinion on Burr's memorandum of March 17th on patronage. Whether it was through Armstrong or another agent of the newfound Clinton-Livingston alliance, they would begin their gambit of denying Burr any influence in the federal patronage business by fighting against the appointment of Burr Lieutenant Matthew Livingston Davis as Naval Officer of the Port of New York, which was, of course, one of the Vice President's recommendations. Mm -hmm. Davis took the unorthodox step of traveling to Monticello personally in September to appeal to President Jefferson, armed with recommendations from various prominent New York Democratic Republicans. Even Jefferson's trusted confidant, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, after receiving an appeal from his own father-in-law, tried to intervene in the matter, writing to Jefferson that September in support of the Davis appointment. Ultimately, Jefferson would not 
make the appointment. Ooh. And the post remained vacant until the president appointed DeWitt Clinton's father-in-law, Samuel Osgood, in 1803. Good grief. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure Burr, he has got a Burr in the saddle about that. He's got a Burr in the saddle about all of this. On yeah. the state level, on the federal level, he is not able to help his supporters. Now, while this was just one political battle loss, Gallatin understood its significance and, in his letter to Jefferson, asked some pointed questions when he wrote, quote, I wish the Republicans throughout the Union would make up their mind. Do they eventually mean not to support Burr as your successor when you shall think fit to retire? Do they mean not to support him at the next election for vice president? Where is the man we could support with any reasonable prospect of success? Mr. Madison is the only one, and his being a Virginian would be a considerable objection. But if without thinking of events more distant or merely contingent, we confine ourselves to the next election, which is near enough, the embarrassment is not less, for even Mr. Madison cannot on that occasion be supported with you. And it seems to me that there are but two ways, either to support Burr once more or to give only one vote for president, scattering our votes for the other person to be voted for. So, Alex, what do you think about that quote? What, what strikes you about that? Well, I mean, it just, it's basically saying, do something. Figure yeah. out what it is you want to do. And, um, you know, it, it's a kind of a desperate plea, for lack of a better word. And this is at the beginning, the beginning of right. Jefferson's presidency and Burr's vice presidency. Mm -hmm. But it really speaks to, and Gallatin is thinking long term. He realizes that the future of the Jefferson administration and his reelection, they needed a key ally in the Empire State to keep support there. Mm -hmm. Gallatin. And we talked last episode, you know, Gallatin and Burr were close. And so he saw Burr as the natural person to be able to help support. And he also saw something that would be a problem as we went along. So Jefferson, the third president, was also the second Virginian to hold the office. Mm -hmm. Gallatin was saying here, okay, well, if it ends up Madison's really the only other person that could succeed you, and he's a Virginian, people are going to have a problem with that. Right. So he's trying to think long term. Jefferson, however, was beginning to believe the arguments that Burr posed a potential threat to his reelection in 1804. So folks are already starting to talk about, well, you remember what happened in 1800. Mm -hmm. Could that happen again? Right. Burr had proven that he could play the political game and rally folks to a cause. If he decided to rally Northern Democratic Republicans in a challenge, they could end up in the same place as they had been in the 1800 election, and without Burr's support this time, it wasn't guaranteed that Jefferson would be the victor. And so Jefferson is starting to think that it's better to diminish Burr's political viability and lean into the Clinton-Livingston coalition. So he's starting to say, yeah, Gallatin, I see you, we do need somebody in New York, but maybe not this guy. Mm -hmm. Indeed, months before Davis went to plead his case to the president, Jefferson wrote to Governor Clinton on May 17th that, quote, 
unacquainted myself with these and the other characters in the state which might be proper for these offices, and forced to decide on the opinions of others, there is no one whose opinion would command me with greater respect than yours. If you would be so good as to advise me, which of these characters and what others would be fittest for these offices? So at this point, he is turning away from his own vice president, his running mate, and he's turning to Governor Clinton. And we'll talk more about this from Clinton's point of view in our next episode, of course, because, spoiler alert, he's the fourth vice president. But what we need to know here in terms of George Clinton, so George Clinton was taking the reins of the state government once more in New York in May 1801. And early in the month, a handbill was published and distributed attacking Vice President Burr as a, quote, Catiline confessed in all his villainy and proclaiming his, quote, unquote, abandoned profligacy. Abandoned. That's a tough word. Profligacy. <laughs> yes. Profligacy. Okay. <laughs> so let's go ahead and translate that in modern parlance. Burr was being attacked as a conspirator and for sleeping around. Ooh. Okay. So though Burr initially dismissed the charges, as Eisenberg notes, quote, from this point on, all depictions of Burr would in some way invoke his sexuality. The sexualized image of Burr was principally a function of political rivalry, and Burr's sex life was easily used to tar him as a libertine at just that time when certain people were whispering that he might be in a position to succeed Jefferson. Though it is undeniable that Burr did engage in sexual intercourse with folks outside of marriage after the death of his wife Theodosia, this was not an unusual practice for the time. Indeed, there are plenty of documented instances of other politicians at the time, both Federalist and Democratic Republicans, not even waiting until the death of their spouse to engage in extramarital affairs. Mm-hmm. But Burr was being attacked for this. Yeah, that's got to feel like a, I don't know, a slap in the face. Yes. And that's the thing for Burr, and, and we saw this again in the first episode, his relationship with Theodosia, his wife, not his daughter. <laughs> Let's go ahead and make that clear. Yes. Theodosia Sr. <laughs> the elder, not the, the elder. Their relationship was one that was unusual. Yeah. You know, A... She was married when it seems like things started up. We don't know exactly whether there was a physical element to it at that point or what, but there was definitely an emotional and intellectual relationship. And this continues because for Burr, the relationships that he had with women were not only of a sexual nature, but could also be flirtatious and intellectually stimulating. So with one of these, he met Leonora Sansei before she married a French merchant from New York. But their relationship continued on after that, and indeed, Louis Sensei even turned to Burr to convince his wife to stay with him, rather than run off with another man, as he feared she would do. The two, you know, Burr and Leonora, maintained a lively correspondence during his vice presidency and for years afterwards. Leonora or Leodosia? Leonora. Okay. I'm getting confused. There's a lot of Leon something and others. <laughs> lots of Leon. Lots of, wow. Yeah. Goodness. VP Burr and his women. I'm telling you. I mean, that's almost like, I kind of feel like this is like the, the 
1800s version of J.R. Ewan. <laughs> Bobby. Non oil baron. <laughs> oil baron. Oil baron. <laughs> now, he had these relationships, but it didn't mean that he wanted to take the route of others and remain a perpetual widower. It seems that upon taking up the vice presidency and, as Eisenberg speculates, prompted by the marriage of his beloved daughter, Burr started to think about remarriage. He wrote to Theodosia, his daughter, mm. about various women whose names he concealed with code names like Celeste, Enamorata, La Planche, and Madame Orlage. Now, we should also note, by the way, if it wasn't already kind of, you know, he's talking to his daughter about his love life. Good grief. That's a little creepy. We should note that if Theodosia did not reply to his letters promptly enough, Burr is on record as referring to his own daughter as a, quote, idle slut. What? <laughs> oh, my God. I had to include that. Wow. Yes. Oh. You little idle slut. Oh. It's oh. my daughter. Oh. Yeah. Goodness gods. Idols. Pot meat kettle. <laughs> really? I'm going to tell you about my escapades. And if you don't reply back fast enough, you're the slut, not me. You're oh, the slut. Abs. Yeah. <laughs> so turning away from his love life. Yes, and, thank you. You know. I feel like I need a shower. <laughs> <laughs> At some point in 1801, a group of American investors met with Burr and a land agent, Timothy Green, that Burr had been involved with in past land deals to discuss their plot to take land in Upper Canada that had been offered by German settlers, but that the governor of Upper Canada, John Graves Simcoe, had refused to allow to be sold to them. Ultimately, nothing would come of this plot, but Eisenberg notes that, quote, it is significant how readily speculators turn to filibustering as an easy, if not legitimate, form of political expression. The faux rebels were entirely comfortable approaching Burr when he was the sitting vice president with their ploy to pressure the Canadian government to play fair with American speculators in their country. So imagine somebody coming to the vice president and saying, hey, we're having trouble with this other government. Why don't you help us out? Mm. Because we want this land mm -hmm. and they won't give it to us. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Burr also got involved with the matter of a Scotsman named John Wood, who had written what was billed as, quote, an expose on the Adams administration. When Burr examined it in October, he determined that it had, quote, some dangerous libel and urged that it be suppressed as it could be used against the Democratic Republicans as an example of their willingness to say and do anything to beat the Federalist. This attempt to spare the party humiliation, would come back to bite him. So just put a pin in that for a moment. Okay. Pin, pin is duly noted. Due to his shaky finances, in November 1801, Burr had to begin the search for a buyer for his estate, Richmond Hill. So last episode, he was already starting to sell off stuff. Now he's just got to sell the estate. Because of dealing with his personal affairs, Burr was delayed for the remainder of the year from traveling to Washington to preside over the Senate despite it beginning its first full session in early December. Meanwhile, as the year went on, a newspaper editor that Burr had previously supported named James Cheatham turned against the vice president 
and instead traveled to Washington, D.C. in December, where he met with Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison to share his supposed intelligence on Burr's intrigues, as well as those of his chief lieutenants. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, Cheatham concocted stories. His accusation against the Burrites was really nothing more than a self-portrait. So it's funny, and for our longtime listeners and Alex, I think you may remember James Callender as well. Mm. So basically, he was a hatchet man for Jefferson, who then turned against him. Same thing here. So Cheatham had been a hatchet man for Burr, had you know helped support him, and now that things are going south, he's turning against him. And going to Jefferson and Madison to do so. Good God. He's, he, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be G-rated here, but I have some <laughs> thoughts about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So even though he was flat out lying, he had the ear of a president who had already decided that Burr was a rival to be taken down. And thus, Cheatham had Jefferson's support to start launching pamphlets against the vice president as 1801 gave way to 1802. So remember that book that I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. word had spread of John Wood's book and that Burr was urging it to be suppressed. Cheatham used the occasion to condemn Burr for trying to suppress a work that would embarrass his supposed Federalist supporters. So instead of what actually happened, Burr didn't want this to embarrass the Democratic Republicans, Cheatham was saying, oh no, Burr's in league with the Federalists and he knew this would make them look bad. That's why he's suppressing it. Wow. Ugh, drama. And this was all within the first year of being vice president. It's not boating well for Burr in the saddle. No, no, it's not. Mm. But still, despite his personal and political issues, Burr still had a job to do as vice president. And thus, on January 15th, 1802, he took up his seat in presiding over the Senate. He arrived just in time for the occasion of his first tie-breaking vote. This tie-breaking vote was all about judges. So, Democratic Republicans put forward a bill in January to repeal the Judiciary Act of 1801, which had been so roundly criticized by their faction as it had created numerous circuit court judgeships in time for President Adams, who was already on his way out, Mm -hmm. to make appointments and the then Federalist-dominated Senate of the outgoing 6th Congress confirmed. So this was, you know, if you've heard the term midnight judges, Mm -hmm. this is is that bill. Yeah. But this repeal was a big ask. And when it came time to send the bill to a third reading, the Senate tied in the vote. Thus, it was up to Burr to cast the vote to send the bill forward. Burr didn't do this without commentary, however. I'm sure as he questioned whether, quote, it might be constitutionally moral to oust the 26 judges Adams had appointed with the repeal. He also voted to send the repeal bill to a select committee that would allow Federalists time to examine the bill in order to prepare their arguments against it. But despite Burr's objections, the Democratic Republicans ultimately won the day, and the Judiciary Act of 1801 was repealed. Though there were Democratic Republicans who shared similar concerns to Burr's around that time, and it is a legitimate concern. These folks had already been appointed. They had already taken office. You weren't supposed to be able to remove judges except by impeachment. And this wasn't impeachment. This was just saying those judgeships that they were appointed to no longer exist. Mm -hmm. 
that can create some problems down the road, potentially. And that's what Burr was saying. But though others in the Democratic-Republican faction shared Burr's concerns, Burr would ultimately be painted as a Federalist sympathizer for his remarks. Wow. No winning. No winning. He didn't help his cause by appearing at a celebration of the anniversary of Washington's birth, hosted by Federalists in D.C. on February 22nd, and delivering a toast, as he was invited to do. Burr's supporters would argue that he didn't attend the dinner hosted by the Federalist, but instead appeared at the end, delivered his quick toast, and left. So he just popped in, gave a toast, and left. He really wasn't there. He didn't even talk to anybody. He didn't even know what this was. He just delivered a toast and was out of there. Yeah, right. Yeah. People weren't buying it. Jefferson and his supporters were not buying this. They're seeing him as cozying up to Federalist. And, you know, whether that was true or not, he's being painted a certain way. Right. Yeah. Now, during this time in his tenure, Burr stayed in what he described as, quote-unquote, handsome lodgings near the Capitol and nearby various close friends of his. His biographer, Milton Lomas, notes that, quote, he entertained often and lavishly. He was diligent in the exercise of his duties as president of the Senate. Burr reformed the manners of that body. Heretofore, its members had moved about as they pleased, slouched in their seats, and consumed food on the premises. The new vice president put an end to the schoolboy practices. Oh, okay. <laughs> he is bringing some order to the Senate. Now, he just likes to get rough. That's what <laughs> People being rough on him, he's going to be rough on. Yeah. Okay. That libertine. Turnabout is fair play. <laughs> so on March 8th, 1802, Burr wrote to his son-in-law, Joseph Alston, describing life in Washington as follows. Quote, I dine with the president about once a fortnight, and now and then meet the ministers in the streets. They are all very busy, quite men of business. The Senate and the vice president are content with each other and move on with courtesy. By this point, however, DeWitt Clinton had succeeded John Armstrong in the Senate, and now he had President Jefferson's ear. So we're starting to see those Clintons getting closer to the president. Mm -hmm. Burr would have a break from the political rigmarole, however, when he traveled to South Carolina in April 1802 to be with his daughter, Theodosia, who was due to have his first grandchild. Though the Senate was still in session until early May, Burr's predecessor Jefferson had already established a precedent that the vice president could be late for the beginning of the session and leave prior to the session ending. So we talked about that in mm -hmm. Jefferson's episode. Right. Thus, Burr was able to greet his grandson, Aaron Burr Alston, guess who he was named after, uh -huh. upon his birth in mid-May, and stayed there until returning home to New York in June, with Theodosia and his grandson in tow, and his son-in-law, Joseph Alston, remaining in South Carolina to campaign for a seat in the state legislature. Politics did not end, despite the personal joy. Oh, boy. And Clinton's intrigues against Burr led the vice president's lieutenant, John Swartwout, to challenge Clinton to a duel. Goodness gracious. Another duel, huh? Another duel. Oh, Here we go again. <laughs> just, just wait. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just wait. We're, we're not done with duels just yet. Man, they were crazy back then. Now, this duel between Clinton and Swartwout was set for July 31st, 1802 at the dueling ground in Weehawken, New Jersey. 
Remember that place. Okay, Weehawken, New Jersey. As described by Eisenberg, quote, A total of five rounds were fired, and Swartwout suffered two leg wounds. After the affair was ended, Swartwout was brought to Burr's home to recover. The vice president's supporters worked that summer to establish a newspaper to counter the Clinton-Livingston Alliance's presses in New York. This new paper, The Morning Chronicle, and its editor, Dr. Peter Irving, were quickly attacked and ridiculed by James Cheatham, quote, for its lack of manliness, and pronounced Irving as, quote, only capable of sputtering effeminate attacks. Ooh, wee. So again, we've got the sexualization here. Mm-hmm. Cheatham went so far as to refer to his rival editor as Miss Irving and her ladyship. Oh my goodness, gosh. This theme of deviant sexuality used in attacks on Burr and his supporters, you know, this this is becoming a thing. Cheatham leaned into this. As described by Eisenberg, quote, Burr's precious band, as he, i.e. Cheatham, called this unnatural faction, was actuated by personal attachments. The homosexual overtones were intentional. Mm. Cheatham had conjured the specter of a sodomite plot, a theme popular in the conspiratorial satire of 18th century England, in which Catiline, the notorious Roman traitor and seducer of young men, often figured prominently. Goodness. So, yeah. Ooh. Upon the advice of New Jersey Governor Joseph Bloomfield, Burr finally responded in September 1802 in a letter which was published in various newspapers attacking Cheatham's charges as, quote, false and groundless, and asserting that, quote, he had never a Senate to be held up in opposition to Jefferson or attempted to withdraw from him the vote or support of any man. So Burr is coming out and saying, guys, really, I didn't try to become president in 1800. I didn't try to steal the vote from Jefferson. That wasn't me. I wasn't even there. Literally was not there. Burr also launched a libel suit against Cheatham, which, though asking for no damages, sought, quote, to obtain depositions from individuals able to testify to the falsity of Cheatham's allegations. Congress assembled for its second session, the last of the Seventh Congress, on December 6, 1802, and this session would last until March 3, 1803. Burr was presiding over the Senate by January 19, 1803, and as the session wrapped up, he traveled south to visit with Theodosia. In 1803, New Jersey Governor Bloomfield arranged for Burr to be conferred an honorary degree of Doctor of Laws by his alma mater, the College of New Jersey at Princeton. Burr continued his support of the institution at Princeton when shortly thereafter a fire damaged Nassau Hall, the vice president contributed to the rebuilding fund. So, you know, he's getting this nice honor from his alma mater. And then when they have trouble, he's like, I'm going to show my support for you. Wow. I'm thinking, you know, since he had to sell Richmond Hill, where is he getting all this money to help provide that support? (laughs) Robbing Peter to pay Paul? I guess so. So turning back to the idea of Burr's remarriage briefly, in June 1803, he apparently proposed to the woman interchangeably known as Celeste and Inamorata, who was living in Philadelphia at the time, but whoever this woman was, she rejected the vice president's proposal. Though the young woman tried to make amends after rejecting him, we know that Burr did not remarry at this point. So 
We don't even really know who this was, but whoever it was, she just, no. She rebuffed his advances and, uh, rebuffed. Meanwhile, President Jefferson summoned the 8th U.S. Congress into its first session earlier than normal in order for it to consider the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, which had been negotiated and sent over from France since the last congressional session. Though Congress assembled on October 17, 1803, Burr would, as normal, missed the beginning of the session. This time, though, there was a good reason. Mm -hmm. A proposed constitutional amendment had been put forward in Congress, which would differentiate the electoral votes for president from those for vice president, a reform which would ensure that there would not be a repeat of the 1800 election fiasco. So it's understanding how this could be embarrassing to the vice president to preside over, given Mm -hmm. what happened in 1800. And so thus, it was September 7th, 1803, five days after the Senate adopted what would become the 12th Amendment, before Burr finally assumed his seat presiding over that body. Meanwhile, the pamphlet war in New York continued, with William P. Van Ness publishing, quote, an anonymous pamphlet in December 1803, signed Aristides, that took George Clinton to task for being under the influence of his haughty and ambitious nephew. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, it is probable that Burr had a hand in the pamphlet. It circulated nationally and effectively humiliated DeWitt Clinton, who threatened to sue the printer if he did not reveal the author's name. So things are heating up. Flame war. Definite flame war. Burr would find himself occupied with the congressional session as he was called on to preside over the Senate impeachment trial of U.S. District Court Judge John Pickering. So we've talked about this trial in the Jefferson Narrative Series, as well as a couple of the Seat at the Table episodes, so we won't go into details here. Pickering would ultimately be found guilty on March 12, 1803, and removed from office. But despite his duties with the trial, and Burr did take this trial seriously, mm-hmm. Burr was still occupied with playing the political game. Because the closer the 1804 election season came, the more pressure was on Burr to determine his next step. DeWitt Clinton continued to work against Burr's receiving the nomination for the vice presidency a second time, and according to Eisenberg, had his own eye on the post. Again, part of the reason that Burr was chosen for the ticket to begin with was this idea Virginia and New York were two of the most populous states. Mm That makes a good alliance. Jefferson, as we've seen, has already kind of started thinking, I need New York, but I don't necessarily need Burr. So, a Clinton? Though we have no record from Burr on this meeting, President Jefferson records that he met with the vice president on the evening of January 26, 1804, with Burr asserting that he, quote, believed it would be for the interest of the Republican cause for him to retire, but requesting, quote, some mark of favor which would declare to the world that he had retired with my, i.e. Jefferson's, confidence. Though he said that he would consider the request, Jefferson was unwilling to do this for Burr. This, however, came as no surprise to the vice president, who had already requested leave from the Senate on January 17th to depart from the Capitol in order to tend business in New York. On February 25th, 1804, the matter was settled by the Democratic-Republican Caucus which chose New York Governor George Clinton as Jefferson's running mate for that election, with 67 of the 108 votes cast. Burr, despite being the incumbent, did not receive a single 
vote. Oh, wow. Ooh. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. He is crashing and burning. Mm. And you got to feel bad for the guy. I mean, I know he didn't do himself any favors, but victim of circumstance in many cases. I mean, it's just, it's very unfortunate. Yeah. But he wasn't completely down and out yet. Mm. If he can't be vice president, why not go back to New York? Mm-hmm. Burr was considering putting his hat in the ring for the New York governorship that year, which is part of the reason that he traveled back to the Empire State, despite Congress still being in session, because it seemed that the incumbent would be leaving the post. So George Clinton, by his being the candidate for vice president, of course, that meant he was out of the governorship. So Clinton's off the table. Burr seeing this as an opportunity to take back power in New York. Mm -hmm. However, the idea of Burr being a contender for the governorship worried DeWitt Clinton as much or more as his continuing as VP as it would threaten his own influence in the state. And so we really see, you know, this is a big power struggle between these factions, between these leaders, and realizing that whoever ends up on top, the other is going to suffer. Clinton urged Jefferson to come out and denounce the vice president. But as always, the president wanted to stay above the fray and leave it to the Clintons and Burr's other enemies to ensure that he got neither post in the 1804 cycle. Mm. The Clintonians put forward Chancellor John Lansing, quote, a political moderate who it was hoped could attract Federalist voters as well as Republicans. Meanwhile, Burr's friends gathered at the Tontine Coffee House on February 18, 1804, and announced that the vice president would be a candidate for governor that year. Hearing the news, Lansing announced that he was withdrawing from the race only two days after getting into it. Oh my God. And leaving the Clintonians scrambling for someone to put up against Burr. So this was the worst possible scenario for the Clintonians. You know, they were already afraid of Burr running. So this is the guy. This is the guy. We, we've got... You're ready, right? You're ready to take on Burr. Sure. No. Burr's in the race. Uh, bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, who's next? Who are they going to find? They opted for a member of the Livingston family by marriage, Chief Justice of the New York Supreme Court, Morgan Lewis. A former Federalist, Lewis was seen as having some of the same strengths that Lansing had brought into the contest in having a cross-factional appeal. So it's interesting, you know, how many times has Burr been painted as the pseudo-federalist, mm-hmm. and now his opponents are turning to a former federalist to beat Burr. Good grief, man. That's yeah. hmm. desperate. And they had to worry, because... You know, was Lewis a strong enough candidate to overcome the vice president's appeal? I mean, this is the sitting vice president. His name is well known. Can Lewis really compete? Meanwhile, Federalists began to approach Burr once more about joining their cause as they had been unable to find a candidate in their own faction willing to run in the race that year. Their designs, however, were more expansive than just one solitary election. Federalist congressmen from New England, Fearing that the purchase of Louisiana meant that their region would continue to diminish in importance and power in the national schema, 
put forward an idea for New England to secede from the Union. Oh, goodness. However, New England alone would struggle to stand on its own. Thus, they turned to Burr as a possible ally to bring New York into the secession plot. Prior to the vice president's departure from D.C., they had approached him about the idea. Burr rejected the idea in that initial meeting, as well as in a follow-up meeting in New York on April 4, 1804. Despite his declining to participate, rumors would continue to circulate that Burr was actively seeking an alliance between his supporters and the Federalists. Goodness. And this would be used against Burr in the future as evidence of his perfidy. So, again, it's like every time you turn around, Burr's trying to do the right thing, and he's still being attacked for it. No winning. There's no winning. Burr's gubernatorial campaign would try to balance the idea of Burr as a reformer opposed to the Clinton-Livingston establishment, while at the same time trying to avoid a direct attack on President Jefferson. Despite their best efforts, some Democratic Republicans who had previously allied with him offered lukewarm support, if any at all, in this contest. As one of his supporters wrote, quote, If Burr must fall, his friends should not be dragged along with him. Even his own stepsons, mm. Frederick and John Bartow, did not get involved. Goodness. Cheatham's attacks, meanwhile, continued with him referring to Burr's supporters as quote-unquote strolling players, which was a term used at the time for male prostitutes. Good grief. He also accused Burr of inviting a group of black voters to his home to offer them quote-unquote elegant amusements, which was a euphemism for sexual favors. Ooh, man, they're throwing the race card and the gay card and all kinds of cards up in this mix. And we thought politics were dirty now. Goodness gracious. I can see where some of these politicians today get in their playbook. Yes. Cheatham had them covered. Cheatham. Cheatham. How appropriate. Ultimately, when the votes were cast in April, Morgan Lewis went on to a resounding victory, besting Burr by an 8,700-vote margin, the largest margin of victory in any New York gubernatorial election to that point. Mm. Gosh, one-two punch. One-two punch. Despite their appeal to him, Federalist voters ended up staying home, believing the Clinton faction's rhetoric that Burr's career was finished, and that, even if he became governor, with the Council of Appointment controlled by his political enemies, he would be powerless. With this, Jefferson, the Clintons, and all of Burr's enemies got what they wanted. As of March 4, 1805, Aaron Burr would be out of political office with little hope of a comeback in the near future. Little did anyone realize that a chain of events was coming which would make any potential political resurgence an impossibility. As the gubernatorial race was wrapping up, a letter from Dr. Charles D. Cooper was published in a newspaper in Albany which contained, quote, a series of insults that Alexander Hamilton had openly declared before a group of prominent men. As you can imagine, Burr was the target of those insults. But the vice president did not actually learn about this letter until after the election was done. On June 18, 1804, Burr wrote to Hamilton about the Cooper letter. 
while Cooper reported that the former Treasury Secretary had referred to Burr as a quote-unquote dangerous man. It was Cooper's statement that, quote, I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr that really got to the Vice President. What exactly did you mean by that, Hamilton? Burr asked. For a little context, the term despicable was generally used at the time, quote, to describe socially degraded or sordid behavior, which could be considered slander. Mm. Indeed, Burr had consulted with friends before sending the note to Hamilton, and it had been on their urging that he sent the initial letter of June 18th. Now, we should note that, at least according to Burr, Hamilton had twice publicly insulted him, but they had managed to settle matters privately before it came to a duel. As described by Eisenberg, quote, All Burr asked for in the build-up to the famous duel was that Hamilton admit that his insulting language was that, insulting. And the two men could have carried on as before, resuming their public business. But Hamilton refused to make a public retreat. He tried to defend that there were degrees of intention to the word despicable, and he could not speak to the degree to which it was intended. (laughs) Needless to say, this only provoked Burr further, who wrote back that in Hamilton's response, he saw, quote, nothing of that sincerity and delicacy which you profess to value. Burr's second, William Van Ness, tried to get Hamilton to recall his exact conversation with Dr. Cooper so that he could present any possible evidence, quote, to disavow the insults. As Eisenberg remarks, quote, many interpreters of the duel have concluded that Hamilton might well have ended the affair there had he taken Van Ness's advice, but he refused to budge. Mm. He brought it on himself. He brought it on himself. After a few more back and forth between the two principals and their seconds, on June 27th, the formal challenge of a duel was issued. Mm-hmm. Again from Eisenberg, quote, In the process, Hamilton and Burr learned how unalike they really were. Hamilton figured it was unavoidable that political rivals would come to insult one another. Burr, on the other hand, considered that politics was already such a slippery slope that one had to exercise greater care in what was said about the opposition. Both men got their affairs in order as the appointed day grew closer. So who challenged who? Burr challenged Hamilton? Burr challenged Hamilton. Yeah. So both men got their affairs in order as the appointed day drew closer. For Burr, that meant writing letters to his daughter Theodosia and his son-in-law Joseph Alston and arranging executors for his estate. The letter to Theodosia contained instructions on which of his letters with female correspondence to burn immediately. Mm. You can only imagine what was in those letters. Uh, Scandalous. (laughs) So remember I told you to remember Weehawken? Weehawken, New Jersey. That would be the location, correct? On July 11th, 1804, the two met at the dueling ground there. Burroughs rode across the Hudson River, first by his second, William Van Ness, then Hamilton, his second, Nathaniel Pendleton, and Hamilton's physician, Dr. David Hosack, arrived. They positioned themselves, and the shots rang out. Then Hamilton collapsed. He had been shot, quote, inches above his right hip, and the bullet passed through his liver and lodged in his spine. 
The argument has raged ever since about who fired first and whether Hamilton actually intended to throw his shot as he had written in a defense of his actions leading up to the duel, which was later published. What we do know is that the injured Hamilton was taken back to Manhattan and Burr sent a note to Dr. Hosack to ask about his condition. The next day, after taking communion from his deathbed, Alexander Hamilton passed away at the age of either 47 or 49. Mm. Hamilton's body wasn't cold before the attacks on Burr began, and a coroner's jury was called repeatedly in New York before an inquest for murder was ordered. Now, remember that the duel itself took place in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. not New York. Correct. If that was unusual enough, we should also keep in mind, as noted by Eisenberg, quote, no duelist had ever been prosecuted in the past despite the existing law against dueling. Hmm. Burr wrote to his son-in-law that the duel with Hamilton had, quote, driven me into a sort of exile and may terminate in an actual and permanent ostracism. Before he could be arrested, on the morning of July 21st, Burr, accompanied by the man he enslaved, Peter Yates, and his friend, John Swartwout, made his way across the Hudson River to New Jersey. Two of Burr's friends had already been arrested for refusing to share information related to the duel, and both Swartwout and William Van Ness, who had served as Burr's second, went into hiding. Burr made his way to Philadelphia to stay until matters could be settled. Appeals were made to New York Governor Morgan Lewis to have Burr extradited from Pennsylvania, but Lewis declined to do so. In early August, rumors began that plots were underway to assassinate the vice president. Burr dismissed these as, quote, mere fables. But one can imagine how unsettling it all was at the time. So here we have, again, nobody has been prosecuted for dueling until Burr. And as we've already seen, this was a common practice at the time. Why Burr? Why this one person? The murder charges in New York against Burr were dropped, but he was, quote, indicted for violating the dueling law. However, a grand jury was called in New Jersey, which indicted him on murder charges, though dueling was legal in that state. Wow. Given how close New Jersey was to Philadelphia, Burr thought it best to proceed further south, and he accepted an invitation from outgoing U.S. Senator Pierce Butler of South Carolina to stay at his plantation on St. Simons Island off the coast of Georgia. The enslaved Peter Yates, as well as Samuel Swartwout, the younger brother of Burr's friend John, accompanied him on the journey. During this time in the South, Burr traveled in Spanish-held East Florida for a few weeks to learn about conditions there. He also apparently managed to send British minister to the U.S. Anthony Mary word that he would, as Mary reported back to London, quote, lend his assistance to His Majesty's government in any manner in which they may think fit to employ him, particularly endeavoring to effect a separation of the western part of the United States from that which lies between the Atlantic and the mountains in its whole extent. Mm. We'll be coming back to this. Don't worry. But just know that's going on too. Though he had been denied the opportunity for a second term and would be replaced in a few months by George Clinton, Aaron Burr, was still the sitting vice president. And thus, he had to make his way to Washington, D.C. to preside over the Senate. Goodness. 
He's on the run for murder charges, dueling charges. Mm -hmm. He potentially has people trying to kill him. He's now conspiring with the British government. And he's got a job to do in Washington, presiding over the Senate. Said not doing himself any favors <laughs> with that last bit about the... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, he had received word while still at St. Simon's that things were cooling down for him in New York. And on his return trip to D.C., he was greeted by a crowd of well-wishers in Savannah, as well as on other stops through the South. Alexander Hamilton was not a popular person in the South. I can only imagine. And so they were kind of okay with Burr coming through. All right, Burr in the saddle. You go, boy. <laughs> you you dealt with Hamilton. Yeah. Burr also availed himself of the opportunity to spend time with Theodosia and his son-in-law and his grandson as well before making his way to the nation's capital. For the first time in his tenure as vice president, Aaron Burr was present on the first day of the second session of the 8th U.S. Congress on November 5th, 1804. Great job. You finally made it on time. Yay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. But hey, he did it. He did it. In addition to the notoriety of having the first and to date only U.S. vice president to be indicted for murder presiding over the Senate, this session would prove to be truly memorable as it saw the first and to date only impeachment trial of a Supreme Court justice. Mm. Before we get to that, though, we should note this observance of Burr from Senator William Plumer, Federalist from New Hampshire, during this session of Congress. Plumer wrote that, quote, he, i.e. Burr, appears to have lost those easy, graceful manners that beguiled the hours away the last session. He is now uneasy, discontented, and hurried. I wonder why. Oh, yeah. It's not like he doesn't have enough on his plate already. <laughs> it's been a rough time. Yeah. Plumer attributed it to the saying that, quote, great guilt never knew great joy at heart. But one can imagine that there was less guilt and more stress about his future prospects that was eating away at Burr at this point. Mm -hmm. His financial situation had been unsteady for years. And as of March 1805, he would have no employment. Because it wasn't like he could go back to practicing law in New York. No. Still, as noted by Eisenberg, quote, In Washington, he, i.e. Burr, faced his colleagues with the poise he was known for, and on occasion dined peacefully with President Jefferson. Whoa! As their rivalry was now at an end, the president could peaceably break bread with the man who slew his arch-nemesis, Hamilton. <laughs> I'm I'm picturing them at the dinner table and Jefferson's just kind of sitting there. Tell me again what it was like to shoot him. <laughs> I mean, just, just give me every detail. I don't condone it, but I want to hear more. <laughs> and yes, I am going to enjoy this glass of wine while you tell me. I have to live up to the name Teasing McTeasing. <laughs> so naturally, after the loss of Hamilton, Federalists weren't too keen on Burr. Oh, uh, yeah. But Democratic-Republican leaders, including Secretary of State James Madison, called on him at his boarding house. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, Of the Republican leadership, it was Gallatin who spent the most time with Burr and who clearly continued to treat him as a friend. The Treasury Secretary was appalled by the duel, not because he considered his friend a murderer, but because he knew it spelled catastrophe 
for Burr's career. So finally, the Democratic-Republican leadership is behind him. Finally. Finally. It just took him shooting and killing Alexander Hamilton. But at this point, that support was too late. His career was in shambles. Burr also used this time to meet with a U.S. Army general visiting the nation's capital at the time to discuss a possible future project that we'll come back to shortly. Okay. Because before we get to that, we need to talk about the Chase trial. Again, we've talked about this in the Jefferson series. We've talked about it with a couple of the Seat at the Table episodes. Now, was Samuel Chase, the Federalist Supreme Court Justice from Maryland, letting his political bias show from the bench? Without a doubt. However, this was not unusual for the time. In fact, it was the norm. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, the Chase trial was a political trial. It was a direct attempt at using impeachment to remove a political enemy. Further, it was one that was spurred on by the president himself. Again from Eisenberg, quote, the Chase case fits a pattern. Republicans were fashioning a doctrine of impeachment that relied on the same English precedent of bad tendency that Federalists had used to prosecute Republicans for seditious libel and treason in the 1790s. So they are turning Federalist arguments against them for now the Democratic-Republican benefit. As with the Pickering trial, Burr found himself in the position of presiding officer when the Chase trial began on January 2nd, 1805. Initially, it looked like Burr would be on the lookout for any opportunity to undercut the Supreme Court justice. As described by Eisenberg, quote, Chase was allowed to respond to the eight articles of impeachment already approved by the House. He was provided with a chair, but Senator William Plumer angrily complained that he should have had a table as well, which Burr refused to provide. Burr had no intention of coddling the judge. He unnerved Chase by interrupting when he saw fit, and Chase was reported later to have been on the verge of tears. Plumer and others may have felt that Burr's behavior amounted to harassment, but his purpose was abundantly clear. He wanted to shame the judge. It wasn't a partisan issue for Burr, however. Again from Eisenberg, quote, The articles of impeachment brought against Chase had highlighted the justice's greatest flaw. He was a bully. Mm -hmm. For Burr, this was Chase's real crime. So Burr had decided and had every right as president of the Senate to teach the bully a lesson. Still, Burr granted Chase a month to prepare his defense, so it wouldn't be until February 4th that the court reconvened. In that time, as described by Eisenberg, Burr, quote, transformed the Senate chamber into a high court of impeachment. The president's raised chair, which Burr occupied, assumed center stage. On the right was a box for the House impeachment managers, and to the left, a similar box for Chase and his defense counsel. Both boxes were covered in green cloth. Benches draped in crimson, Mm -hmm. placed on each side of the president's chair, were provided for the senators. Additional seats were added to accommodate the hundreds of spectators who came to watch the grand performance. Other boxes were occupied by visiting dignitaries, and a special gallery was built for the exclusive accommodation of the ladies, as one reporter described it. So this is this 
grandiose scene for this trial. Burr would preside over the trial with a strong sense of decorum, scolding senators for walking about during testimony, admonishing folks for eating in the courtroom, and even making a defense attorney take off his winter coat while indoors. He was not having any shenanigans. You were going to treat this courtroom with respect. Mm -hmm. Again, from Eisenberg, quote, he was striving for civility so that this high court of impeachment might achieve something of real value, impartiality. If this was his court, Burr wanted reason to rule it. Burr was also involved in the testimony of witnesses, asking them at times, quote, to clarify their statements. He would also ask the senators for their thoughts when points of order were brought up before making a final ruling. Representative Samuel Taggart, Federalist from Massachusetts, called Burr, quote, one of the best presiding officers I ever witnessed for his conduct in the Chase trial. And again, remember that this is right after Hamilton, all the scandal. Mm -hmm. Federalists do not like Burr, but he's starting to impress him again. About time. About time. Finally, closing arguments were made, and the vice president supervised the Senate vote on the eight articles of impeachment. Chase was acquitted on all charges, with six Democratic Republicans crossing the aisle to vote not guilty with the Federalist. With that done, Burr adjourned the court on March 1st and ended his last major business of his tenure as vice president. While the Chase trial had occupied the majority of his time in his final months as vice president, Burr had used the month-long recess of the trial to travel to Philadelphia to meet with New Jersey Governor Joseph Bloomfield about the murder charge. Democratic-Republican leaders in Washington, meanwhile, had put together a petition asking Governor Bloomfield to intervene to have the charges against Burr dropped. Burr's future was still hanging in the balance as he performed his last duty as vice president. A day after the trial's end, on March 2, 1805, Burr cleared the galleries and delivered his farewell address to the Senate. Burr began with a discussion of the rules of the Senate and the importance of maintaining them, but then turned to an, quote, affecting declaration of sincere respect for the men who sat before him. He apologized for ever, quote, wounding the feelings of individual members. On his part, he had no injuries to complain of. If any had been done or attempted, he was ignorant of the authors, and if he had ever heard, he had forgotten. He assured them that he had aimed in his tenure as their presiding officer to act, quote, uniform and indiscriminate, and in this official role had, quote, known no party, no cause, no friend. He expressed his belief that, quote, it is here, it is here, in this exalted refuge, here, if anywhere will resistance be made to the storms of popular frenzy, and the silent acts of corruption, end quote, and ended his speech expressing, quote, the afflicting sensations which attended a final separation, end quote, and his belief in the body of the Senate in upholding, quote, principles of freedom and social order, end quote. Senator Samuel Mitchell, Democratic Republican from New York, and not a Burr supporter at all, wrote to his wife that, after Burr delivered his remarks, quote, he descended from the chair and in a dignified manner walked to the door, which resounded as he with some force shut it after him. On this, the firmness 
and resolution of many of the senators gave way, and they burst into tears. There was a solemn and silent weeping for perhaps five minutes. The Washington Federalist also reported that after his speech, quote, the whole Senate was in tears and so unmanned that it was half an hour before they could recover themselves. Burr wrote to Theodosia later that the words had come to him as he knew he had, quote, to say something, and that, quote, it was the solemnity, the anxiety, the expectation, and the interest which I saw strongly pained in the countenances of the auditors that inspired what I said. On March 4, 1805, George Clinton took the oath of office, and Aaron Burr entered retirement from political office. This did not mean, however, that it would be a quiet retirement. Mm, I didn't figure it would be. But here we have, I mean, this has been four turbulent years for him. You, know, you remember all that mm-hmm. we talked about, the pamphlet wars, back and forth, political machinations and duels and death and threats and at the federal and state level yeah and he's leaving with some dignity yeah don't worry that won't last long <laughs> they don't call him burr in the saddle for nothing <laughs> burr's back in the saddle again back in the saddle and it's gonna start kicking you <laughs> Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. So, if Burr couldn't return to his life in New York, he did what many others were doing at the time when thinking of getting a kickstart for a new phase of life. He turned west. As early as 1803, Burr had written to his childhood friend, Senator Jonathan Dayton, Federalist from New Jersey, about the idea of traveling to New Orleans. If Burr could get a filibustering scheme together, which was putting together a private army to enter foreign-held territory, To take some of the Spanish-held lands in the South and West, he could serve not only his own personal interest, but those of the United States who were looking at those lands for future expansion. Now, while filibustering in and of itself was illegal, a blind eye was turned on it when it was committed during a time of war, and Burr, having been in Washington, D.C. for four years, knew that tensions were brewing on the border related to the Louisiana Purchase. Further, the Jefferson administration was definitely interested in taking more Spanish-held colonies. Certainly, the Floridas, which they already argued had been part of the Louisiana Purchase, but also neighboring Tejas. As Secretary of State Madison wrote in 1803, Spain could not counter the, quote, growing power of this country and the direction of it against her possessions within its reach. So, This was some insider information. He knew that the Jefferson administration was really interested in acquiring Spanish-held territory. The Spanish were seen as being kind of a weaker European state. This is something that could happen, and it could help Burr as well. 
But this scheme would require allies. And for this, he turned to his friend Aiden, whose Senate term had ended, as well as a notorious scoundrel quite familiar to listeners of presidencies. That's right. It's our old friend, General James Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with Wilkinson, Alex. Yeah. Do you know Wilkinson? I know the name. So basically, this is the general who is secretly a Spanish agent who time and again is nearly caught, and then he ends up floating back up like a bad penny. <laughs> or, yeah. or something or else. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> G-rated again. So, though they weren't close acquaintances, Burr and Wilkinson had known each other over the years and had done favors for one another. With Wilkinson serving now as the governor of the Louisiana Territory, which, deceptively enough, even though we think of Louisiana as being the boot, you know, down in the Gulf South, the Louisiana Territory was modern-day Arkansas and North, including modern-day Missouri. So Wilkinson was serving in this post, as well as he was the military commander of forces in the West. So thus, he was a good ally for Burr to have. Mm -hmm. He had schemes out West that he wanted to carry out. Yes. Now, Wilkinson was the general that I mentioned earlier that Burr was meeting with in Washington. Wilkinson was in town during the winter of Burr's final months as vice president. And we know that they discussed the possibility of a filibustering expedition into Mexico. Now, I mentioned that Wilkinson had been playing the role of double agent and manipulating U.S. government policy in his known role in the military and Spanish government policy as a long-standing paid secret agent. As described by Eisenberg, the intelligence that the general provided to both, quote, heightened rather than reduced tensions between the two countries. So Wilkinson was helping to provoke both sides to war. Meanwhile, I mentioned earlier Burr's overture to British Minister Mary. While at face value, it does sound like a treacherous scheme. As Eisenberg explains, Burr told Mary what he wanted to hear in order to potentially get financial and possibly military support for his true scheme, which was the filibustering expedition to Mexico. In April 1805, Burr departed from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, then went down the Ohio and Mississippi River to New Orleans. At his stops in Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, Burr, quote, was received with much hospitality and kindness. The former vice president used the opportunity to renew old acquaintanceships with folks in the region and to gather information on the ground. He also stopped, quote, at the island retreat of Harmon and Margaret Blennerhassett, which was in the middle of the Ohio River and described by Eisenberg as follows, quote, their 170-acre estate lay 14 miles below Marietta, off the shore of modern Parkersburg, West Virginia. The Blennerhassett Mansion was built in the grand style of an Irish country home, with serpentine walks and gardens filled with exotic flowers and plants. So keep that description in mind, as we'll be coming back to Blennerhassett Island before too long. He'd also stay during this journey at the home of Andrew Jackson. Oh, go Andy Jackson. Old Andy J. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, adding up these Western-based allies, Burr was cultivating a formidable following. Smith, Dayton, Adair, Brown, and Jackson were all senators or ex-senators, state leaders, and major speculators. 
They had military experience and broad connections. Mm -hmm. While in New Orleans in June, Burr worked to meet with Baron Alexander von Humboldt, who had, quote, drafted the most complete map of Mexico. But apparently, he was unable to make that meeting happen. On July 14th, Burr began his return trip, going back through Tennessee and Kentucky and visiting Wilkinson in St. Louis before going to Ohio and finally returning to Washington, D.C. in November 1805. Speculation about Burr's Western tour was already starting up in the East. In early August 1805, the United States Gazette in Philadelphia published a story which questioned, quote, how long will it be before we shall hear of Colonel Burr being at the head of a revolution party on the Western waters? Burr was pronounced by detractors the, quote, Little Quid Emperor, or the, quote, Emperor of the Quids, hmm. which refers to the Tertium Quids, the name given to a third-party movement building in the Democratic-Republican faction at the time in opposition to the Jefferson administration. So, again, he's being kind of painted as this anti-Jeffersonian. Now, this wasn't the first time Burr had been referred to as an emperor for, in September 1804, while the vice president was on his sojourn to the South, the American citizen asked the question, quote, does he, i.e. Burr, mean to become emperor of the island of St. Simons? As Eisenberg notes, this relates to the anxiety at the time about Napoleon, who had earlier that year declared himself emperor of the French. So again, we're starting to see in the press, we're starting to see in conversation, this somewhat irrational fear of Burr and of Burr being this power-hungry person. Mm -hmm. Upon Burr's return to the East, he spent the next nine months traveling between Philadelphia and Washington. He even during this time dined at the president's house with Jefferson, who was starting to receive a smattering of letters from folks warning of Burr's intentions in the West. Still, in three separate dinners on November 19, 1805, February 22, 1806, and April 9, 1806, Jefferson did not bring up any of the word that he had been getting about Burr, nor say anything that would lead Burr to believe that he wouldn't support a filibustering scheme against Spanish-held territory in the case of war. It does seem, however, as if Burr was having second thoughts about the Western scheme, for he was angling at the time to get an appointment to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, and it seems like the overture to Jefferson was an attempt to seek a federal appointment. Hmm. It seemed like the administration was trying to find a peaceful resolution to the issue of the Floridas by purchasing them outright, so that may have been a reason for his hesitation. The British were also cool to the idea of supporting Burr's scheme. So he's starting to see signs that this may not work out, mm -hmm. so he's got to figure out what's next. Right. Burr also turned his mind to land speculation once more, because, of course, everybody loves land speculation at the time, and made arrangements that winter, quote, to purchase a portion of a large tract of land known as the Bastrop property, which was located near the Washita River in northwestern Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Burr could use this to establish a settlement, quote, and bide his time until a filibuster made sense. So this would put him kind of on the scene just in case things started to prove, oh, well, maybe, maybe filibustering's back on. Mm -hmm. This Western scheme was not completely over, however, as Jonathan Dayton was sent to meet with the Spanish minister to the U.S., Erujo, in Philadelphia, and offer up the suggestion that Burr, quote, 
planned a coup d'etat against Jefferson and would infiltrate Washington with his army of adventurers and oppose the president and then seize the public money in the Washington banks. And if he failed to win popular support, he would destroy all the federal ships in the nearby harbor and flee to New Orleans. There, Burr would declare the independence of Louisiana and the western states from the Union. Now, I know you're probably asking yourself, Alex, why in the world would Dayton suggest such a thing? We haven't talked about any of this yet. Right. Two reasons. One, to throw Arujo and, by extension, the Spanish government, off the trail that it was Spanish-held territory that Burr was really after. And two, to get money. Though Dayton didn't get the $40,000 he requested, he did end up getting $2,500 from Arujo, thus making the Spanish government the only foreign contributor to a scheme to take Spanish-held territory. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. The Spanish contributed to taking Spanish-held territory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, hope nobody finds out about that, Arujo. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of August 1806, Burr made his way west once more, again going through Pittsburgh, where he stayed at the home of Colonel George Morgan. Burr thought that Morgan might be sympathetic to his cause since he had founded his own colony, New Madrid, in Spanish-held territory in 1789. Instead, Morgan was aghast at Burr's talk of Western secession and sent word to President Jefferson about it. Burr then proceeded down the Ohio River to Blennerhassett Island, which was quickly becoming a rallying point for the effort, a place where supplies and men for the filibustering expedition were being gathered. Among those gathering on the island were Theodosia Burr Alston and her husband, Joseph Alston. The two would later meet up with Burr in Lexington. The former vice president then went on to Cincinnati, Frankfort, Kentucky, and Nashville. It was at the latter that Burr urged Andrew Jackson, who was the head of the Tennessee State Militia, to ready his forces. Meanwhile, in the summer of 1806, it looked like war was coming along the Sabine River, which was the dividing line between the territory of Orleans, which is modern-day Louisiana, and Spanish-held Tejas. A thousand Spanish troops had crossed the river and were within 10 miles of the American settlement of Natchitoches. Despite being ordered to take reinforcements to New Orleans, General Wilkinson dragged his feet, thus prolonging the conflict. Meanwhile, Wilkinson wrote to a person involved in the filibustering plot that he felt they had a good chance of, quote, subverting the Spanish government in Mexico. Just as it seemed conditions were getting prime for the success of the plans, a backlash started building in the West. That same summer, the summer of 1806, a new paper started to be published in Kentucky called The Western World, and they quickly found a niche in launching attacks against Burr and his associates, claiming that a conspiracy was afoot. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, despite its lack of credible evidence and the abusive and sensational style of the Western world, the paper became wildly popular, and other newspapers quickly reprinted its stories. Meanwhile, more and more reports were flooding into Washington about Burr's activities. It was primarily filled with hearsay and innuendo, but it was convincing the Jefferson administration that action should be taken, to the point that the president convened meetings of his cabinet on October 22nd, 24th, and 25th, 1806,
to discuss the Burr matter. Before they could give direction, however, a U.S. district attorney acted of his own volition. As a Federalist, Joseph Hamilton Davis, the U.S. District Attorney for Kentucky, was already predisposed to dislike Burr. On November 5th, Davis, quote, presented an affidavit before Judge Henry Ennis charging Burr with having prepared an invasion of Mexico and demanded that the court issue a warrant for Burr's arrest. He claimed that he had sufficient evidence to prove that Burr intended to separate the western states from the Union. So here we go, back to litigation again. Yes, indeed. Burr engaged the services of a young lawyer named Henry Clay, who listeners, as well as you, Alex, may know as someone we're going to be talking about in presidencies much more as we go along. Yes. And Clay was able to get these charges resolved despite a concerted but ultimately baseless effort from Davis. While Burr was fighting these charges in Kentucky, General Wilkinson was concluding an agreement with Spanish officials on the southwestern border. On November 5, 1806, Wilkinson concluded a truce with Spanish General Nemesio Saucedo to establish a neutral zone that would last for years to come along the Spine River. But wait, you ask? Wasn't Wilkinson part of this plan to use war with Spain as a pretense for a filibustering expedition into Mexico? And hadn't he just been doing all he could to make that happen? Yeah, so here we are again. Got the whiplash going. Okay, here we go again. It seems as if Wilkinson got cold feet and saw that retreat is the better part of valor. As discussed in more detail in the narrative series, this was a premeditated act by Wilkinson. The general understood that his role in this scheme was key. And after weighing his options, he decided to turn coat on Burr and the filibusters and instead portray himself as the hero to the Jefferson administration in thwarting the scheme. As noted by Heisenberg, quote, it is difficult to pinpoint exactly when Wilkinson resolved that he would betray Burr. But on October 22, 1806, he sent off a report and confidential letter to Jefferson that exposed a conspiracy in the making. This was, of course, a fantastical report of 10,000 men poised to march on New Orleans and Mexico. But for a president already convinced that the man pinpointed as the ringleader was a dangerous person, it didn't take much to convince Jefferson of the validity of Wilkinson's accusations though the general didn't name Burr outright in this first communication. It wasn't long in coming, though. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, destroying Burr seemed the only way to divert suspicion from himself and salvage his own tarnished reputation. Mm -hmm. But this is what you get when you start to cavort with Mm -hmm. men like Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. They're not the most loyal. No, they're not. Wilkinson started writing to officials in the Orleans Territory and arrived in New Orleans on November 25th to take control of the situation and round up some of the men that he knew to be Burr's conspirators. In the meantime, President Jefferson issued a proclamation on November 25th, 1806, about a vague conspiracy and urged, quote, faithful citizens to not engage in a filibustering expedition into Spanish-held territory. This was followed up with sending to Congress on January 22nd, 1807, all the information that he had thus far on the filibustering expedition, quote, and for the first time, he publicly accused Burr 
of leading an illegal expedition and engineering a conspiracy to separate the Western states from the Union. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on Blennerhassett Island, on the evening of December 10, 1806, Harmon Blennerhassett and other key supporters of Burr fled. And the next day, the militia of Wood County, Virginia, invaded the island to break up the filibustering expedition. Burr didn't learn of Wilkinson's betrayal until January 10, 1807, from a letter from acting governor of the Mississippi Territory, Cowles Mead. After successfully fending off charges in Kentucky, Burr had made his way down the river with some supporters, and they were camping at Bayou Pierre on the Orleans Territory side when the letter arrived from Meade informing him that he had to take the former vice president into custody. After negotiations, Burr surrendered. A grand jury hearing was held in Washington, Mississippi Territory on February 2nd, and two days later, Burr was, quote, absolved of all charges. The panel also took the opportunity to disparage Wilkinson and sharply rebuked local officials for having treated Burr as a prisoner of war. This was largely due to Burr's popularity in the area rather than any legal standpoint or precedent. Indeed, Governor Meade was worried that his own men may join Burr in his plans. So even though he's trying to prosecute Burr as he was directed by the federal government, he really doesn't have the power here. Right. Burr does. Burr's the popular one in the West. Burr's release was on the caveat, quote, that he remain in the vicinity of the court. For Burr, though, this was unacceptable, as he now knew that Wilkinson had agents out looking for him to take him against his will to New Orleans, where he would be at the general's mercy. So Wilkinson had his folks in New Orleans. If Burr ended up there, that was it. That was it. Thus, Burr made himself scarce. On February 18th, Federal Land Registrar Nicholas Perkins was working at the courthouse at Wakefield in what is now modern-day Alabama, 200 miles away from the capital of the Mississippi Territory, when he heard the sounds of horses and talked to one of the riders who asked for directions. Perkins observed their quote-unquote odd behavior and began to wonder if this was the infamous Aaron Burr. Convincing the local sheriff to join him, they caught up with Burr and his party at a nearby tavern, which was then known as an inn as well as what we think of as a tavern. It wasn't just where you go to drink. Mm -hmm. You also stayed there. Mm -hmm. Perkins slipped out to head to a nearby fort where he spoke with the commanding officer, Lieutenant Edmund Gaines, and Gaines led, quote, a small detail of soldiers back to Henson's farm where they took Burr into custody. Gaines would put together a guard that would bring Burr to Washington, D.C., and they set off on March 5, 1807. As described by Eisenberg, quote, the trip was hazardous and physically demanding for all involved. The party crossed swollen streams and rivers and traversed the rough terrain of the Alabama and Georgia backcountry. Burr attempted to escape at Chester, South Carolina, which, of course, you know, is close to our home in the Charlotte area. However, this attempt failed, and they kept on drawing closer to the Potomac. When they arrived at Fredericksburg, Virginia, however, they received official word that they should bring Burr to Richmond, where they arrived on March 26th. The capital of Virginia would be the scene of the infamous Burr trial. As described by Eisenberg, quote, The Burr trial featured some of the greatest oratory of the age amid heated exchanges, exhibitions of wit, and incisive demonstrations of legal logic. 
It was the trial of the century in the 19th century. But why Virginia for the setting of this trial, you ask? Well, technically, the case that was built revolved around the goings-on at Blennerhassett Island, which was a part of Virginia, despite Mm -hmm. its being in the middle of the Ohio River, because this was before West Virginia split off, and thus Virginia did stretch that far up to the northwest. At Jefferson's urging, the prosecution counsel had done their work and had assembled over 140 witnesses to attest to Burr's guilt. Jefferson had not taken into account, however, that this court would be presided over by his cousin and erstwhile nemesis, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. Mm-hmm. There was also the slight problem that Burr was not, in fact, present at Blennerhassett Island when everything went down there with the militia from Virginia. Meanwhile, folks were questioning the Jefferson administration's reliance on the testimony of General James Wilkinson, who, though it wouldn't be until the 20th century that his status as a secret Spanish agent was confirmed, was at least expected of being an untrustworthy and scandalous figure by a number of contemporaries. Mm-hmm. With Chief Justice Marshall presiding over the trials of some of Burr's co-conspirators prior to the trial of the former vice president, and setting a narrow definition of treason as quote-unquote an overt act, the case against Burr was doomed to failure. Despite the Jefferson administration spending nearly $100,000 on prosecuting him, with the president providing the district attorney with blank pardons to summon whoever he could find to help the case or silence those who may hinder it, on September 1st, 1807, the jury declared, quote, that Aaron Burr is not proved to be guilty under the indictment by any evidence submitted to us. We, therefore, find him not guilty. $100,000, so if memory serves, wasn't the Louisiana Purchase $3 million? So the Louisiana Purchase was $15 million. Okay, my apologies. But, still, but that's a lot of money. For a still, $100,000 in a prosecution effort in the early 1800s, that was a lot of money. That's a ton of money. And especially for Jefferson, who was supposed to be this fiscal conservative Mm -hmm. who didn't want the federal government to spend a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. This would not, however, be the last trial for Aaron Burr. For eight days, (laughs) of course. I mean, (laughs) this is a man who's going to end up in a courtroom, whether he's a lawyer or being prosecuted or serving as a judge or whatever. The Energizer court money. (laughs) Who knows where he's going to be today? He's going to be in court, though. So eight days later, he was back in court on misdemeanor charges of attempting a filibuster expedition. In this trial as well, Burr was found not guilty. Yeah. Jefferson and his supporters would attribute Burr's acquittal with the partisanship of Chief Justice John Marshall. But in fact, it was the flimsiness of the government's case and the reliance on unscrupulous witnesses that led to the trial's result. As Eisenberg notes, quote, the entire rationale for charging Burr with treason in the so-called Burr conspiracy rested on Wilkinson's word and a deliberately altered letter. Jefferson, meanwhile, could do nothing but write his own private opinions of his former vice president including this remark to Robert Livingston that, quote, Burr has indeed made a most inglorious exhibition of his much overrated talents. Ooh. Jefferson's predecessor as president, John Adams, wrote of Burr that, though he considered him to be, quote, 
an idiot or a lunatic, Adams had, quote, never believed him to be a fool. Mm-hmm. With the criminal trials at an end for the time being, uh-huh. <laughs> Burr was able to focus his attention back on dealing with his financial issues as his creditors were demanding the, quote, repayment of loans or bills they had honored, wasting little time in bringing $36,000 in civil suits against him. Thus, in late 1807, Burr traveled from Richmond via Baltimore, bound for Philadelphia. But the former vice president would find that his presence in the charmed city was not all that welcome. He would depend on an armed escort from Baltimore's mayor to make it out safely on a public stagecoach while effigies of him, Chief Justice Marshall, and others were hung and burnt. Ooh, no love lost there. No, Baltimore is not his place. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. Doesn't have fans there. Burr's time in Philadelphia would be spent in hiding, though in this case it was from creditors and not people wanting to hang him and burn him. <laughs> it would be in Philadelphia that Burr retained the services of a young lawyer named Nicholas Biddle, a fellow alum from the College of New Jersey and the son of one of Burr's old friends. This 21-year-old would go on to be the president of the Second Bank of the United States. We'll be talking about him much more as we go along in presidencies, but for now, he would be putting his talents to work to, quote, keep Burr out of debtor's prison. Burr's criminal difficulties were not over just yet, however, as he and Harmon Blennerhassett were indicted at the U.S. District Court at Chillicothe, Ohio, in January 1808. Blennerhassett had soured on the former vice president by this point and had himself initiated a civil court suit against Burr. Good grief. I mean, you know, granted, because of the conspiracy that Burr was leading, his home was destroyed, but yeah. um, you kind of signed up for it, buddy. Yeah, just a, yeah, just a tad, just a tad. You signed up for it. Ultimately, there would be no follow-up on the indictment, and they would never go to trial in Ohio. Meanwhile, Burr's associate Samuel Swartwild had made his way to Great Britain to act as Burr's agent there. In February 1808, he was approached by a common associate about reviving the filibuster scheme and getting the British government on board with the idea of Burr coming across the Atlantic, ostensibly to talk more about a joint Anglo-American expedition, but in actuality, to get Burr out of the reach of American creditors. In April 1808, Burr made his way to New York City under an assumed name. Theodosia met him there and helped throw the trail off of him by posting a notice in the newspapers, quote, that her father had been spotted on his way overland to Canada. On June 9, 1808, under the name H.G. Edwards, Burr got on board a packet headed to Nova Scotia, then on to Britain. In what was likely not a coincidence, one of the 36 passengers on board was the son of the British associate that Swartwild had connected with in London. The stop in Halifax, Nova Scotia, allowed Burr to meet with Sir George Prevost, a relative of his late wife, and get letters of introduction from him to key contacts in England. On July 13th, the packet ship docked at Falmouth, and three days later, Aaron Burr was in London. Once on the ground, as noted by Eisenberg, quote, Burr desperately needed as many influential friends as he could win over, who could pull strings to protect him and help him get around the restrictions he faced as an alien. I mean, it wasn't like he could go to the American embassy and expect to receive any support. Definitely not. (laughs) 
Any chance of the British supporting a filibustering expedition against Spanish-held territory ended that July as the British government announced its support for the Spanish insurgency against the rule of the French Empire through the proxy of Emperor Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte, who had been installed as the King of Spain. So, at this point, Britain has been at war with France for ever. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so there's a Spanish opposition to this French puppet state. They're joining with them. They don't want to launch an expedition against Spanish-held territory. Burr lodged with English philosopher Jeremy Bentham at his London residence by August. Again from Eisenberg, quote, To say that Burr was enthralled with Bentham is not an exaggeration. He sent Theodosia a bust of the reformer and convinced her to make a project of translating into French some of his unpublished work. No two men could have been better intellectually suited for one another. In addition to providing a support for Burr, Bentham likewise was influenced by Burr's presence, and 1809 is noted as, quote, a crucial turning point for the philosopher as he overcame his fears of the French Revolution and began to look to America as the democratic model of the future. Who better than someone who had been intimately involved in the government of the United States to influence an English philosopher on the matter? Mm -hmm. While trying to figure out his future, Burr learned that his daughter Theodosia was suffering from ill health. She had suffered from various ailments since the birth of her son in 1802, but one of the worst ailments, quote, were the mental afflictions. Night and day, she suffered hysteric fits, saw flashing lights, heard strange noises, all of which made it impossible for her to think, let alone read a book or carry on an intelligent conversation. Mm, That's tragic. It was similar ailments to what her mother had experienced after childbirth. Burr urged his daughter to travel to England so that she could consult with a British doctor that he had found, but she was not well enough for a winter voyage across the Atlantic. After submitting a claim of British nationality due to his technically having been born in a British colony as an option to resolve the alien issue, in late December 1808, Burr traveled to Edinburgh, where he was greeted upon arrival at a public welcome by the Lord Mayor. While there, Burr was able to meet with literary figures such as Walter Scott, as well as with numerous ladies who he got to know quite intimately. Of course he did. Of course he did. We know of his intimate relations, as Burr was kind enough as to leave a journal to posterity about his scandalous goings-on. He was no idle slut. He was no idle slut. (laughs) No, he was going to write down all of his hard work. As Eisenberg notes, quote, We must understand that sexuality was neither sinful nor savage for men of the Enlightenment. Instead, sexual enjoyment was acceptable and refined, a rational pleasure. His journal vividly captured the multifarious sexual landscape of Europe, including prostitutes, chambermaids, sirens, and manipulative French women who love only in the head, but give no more of themselves. Hmm. We should also note that there are instances in his journal where he seems to make note of sexual overtures being made towards him by men. Oh. Eisenberg notes that Benham and Burr discussed what we would now call homosexuality, though it would still be a few decades before that term was coined. And it seems that Burr did not see it in a judgmental lens, but rather as a reality of life and the human condition. So, point in the good column for Burr. Yeah, well. His purpose in writing this journal, however, does not appear to be to mark his sexual triumphs, 
Rather, as described by Eisenberg, quote, Burr's curt descriptions were neither pornographic nor salacious. Their brevity made them almost sociological. More to the point, he wrote so as to monitor himself, putting pen to paper to curb his excesses. Interesting. Yeah. Burr returned to London at the beginning of February 1809 and met with Lord Melville about the slim, lingering hope of the filibustering expedition. Nothing would come of this meeting, however, and Burr was summarily arrested on April 4th on the suspicion of being, quote, a dangerous alien. Oh, my, my, my. Here we go again. (laughs) He was only held two days before being released, with his possessions being returned to him, but it was made clear to him by British officials that he had worn out his welcome in the country. On April 25th, 1809, after bidding his farewells to Jeremy Benham and other friends and associates in London, Burr boarded a ship bound for Stockholm, Sweden. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, Burr was fascinated with Sweden. He visited museums and art galleries, studied the language, and closely examined the laws. His social calendar included historians, geographers, jurists, and prominent politicians. Burr gained access to the Society of Nobles, an exclusive club which housed an extensive library. Burr intended to proceed on from Sweden to the Russian Empire, but U.S. Minister to Russia John Quincy Adams denied his passport. Mm. After five months, on November 23, 1809, Burr arrived in Copenhagen, Denmark, and spent his time there conversing with European intellectuals. Burr was nearly broke at this point, but thankfully, a Swedish friend sent along, quote, a gift of a thousand marks as well as his thanks for having had the opportunity to spend time with Burr, quote, a man he had long esteemed and now loved. Hmm. By mid-November, Burr was in Hamburg, then by Christmas was in Goetzingen, where he awaited word as to whether his petition to travel to France would be granted. He learned at this point that French Emperor Napoleon, quote, had thrown his support over to the independence movement in Mexico and other Spanish colonies. On hearing the news, Burr added a sarcastic phrase to his private journal. Now, why the devil didn't he tell me of this two years ago? He's like, I wanted to do that. I would have helped you with that. Why? Come on. (laughs) Hearing nothing from France, in early 1810, Burr made his way to Weimar, where he was greeted by the aristocracy there. Finally, in early February, he received a passport to proceed to Paris and arrived there on the 16th. With Napoleon now open to independence in Spanish America, Burr's hopes of the filibustering expedition were raised once more. In meeting with French officials, Burr proposed taking Florida first, then using it as a base to take Mexico and possibly the Bahamas, Cuba, and Jamaica. Hmm. Burr even arranged a meeting with the emperor's brother Jerome to plead his case. But he finally accepted that it was a lost cause. Thus, he applied for a passport to return to the United States. But the request was denied. Of course it was. Burr was stuck in Paris. In addition to his intimate moments with female companions, because of course, he's Burr, Burr was apparently also offered the opportunity to become, quote, a kept man, Uh, which he declined. Yeah, so apparently this French lady was like, well, you know, you can just be my boy toy. (laughs) And he was like, no. No. Instead, Burr took on small jobs, including, quote, 
translating a book into French for 100 louis, which he knew contained, quote, abuse and libels. In the spring of 1811, Burr finally secured a passport to Amsterdam, where he traveled in the hopes of, quote, an opportunity to speculate in Holland Land Company shares. However, he also found a ship captain willing to bring him back to the U.S. So he obtained a new passport from Paris, and on September 28th, began the journey back home. It wasn't to say that Burr was not worried about his homecoming. He wrote that he was afraid, quote, that the country which I am so anxious to revisit will perhaps reject me with horror. His daughter Theodosia did her part in attempting to make his return as smooth as possible by reaching out to cabinet members in the Madison administration with whom Burr had had a close relationship, including Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin and Secretary of War William Eustace, as well as First Lady Dolly Madison. None of them would do anything to help Burr. His return would turn out to take a bit longer than he anticipated, as the ship he was on was detained at Yarmouth for months. But when it finally readied to set sail in January 1812, the destination had changed to New Orleans, and the captain dropped Burr from the passenger list. Pulling together all the money that he could get, quote, from friends and even enemies, Burr booked passage on a British packet ship that departed on March 28, 1812. Burr wrote at the time that, quote, I hope never to visit the country, i.e. Britain, again, unless at the head of 50,000 men. I shake the dust off my feet. Adieu, John Bull. In five weeks' time, Burr arrived in Boston, where he stayed for a few weeks before traveling incognito to New York City, still keeping a low profile to avoid his creditors. Though still on shaky ground, Burr opened up a new law office in July in order to attempt to get back on his feet. So he's going back to the courtroom again, this time as a lawyer. My God, but it's okay. Under his real name? <laughs> Under, <laughs> supposedly. Okay. Statue of limitations on those credits. Creditors, I guess. Okay. Sadly, the hits kept on coming for Burr as he learned that his grandson and namesake, Aaron Burr Alston, had died at the age of 11. Oh, gosh. Both Burr and Joseph Alston thought that it would be best for Theodosia to travel to be with her father, and her ship set sail on December 31st, 1812. It would never arrive. Oh, no. The ship was lost off the coast of the Carolinas, presumably off the Outer Banks, during a violent storm. There was a later claim made by a woman on the banks that she was Theodosia Burr Alston, but the validity of this claim has yet to be proven. For Burr as well as Alston, this was a devastating loss. In terms of Burr's legacy, as many of his papers were with Theodosia on board the ship, posterity has lost a wealth of information in terms of primary resources which could have illuminated so much more about Burr and his life and legacy. Mm. Burr would spend a good deal of time in Albany reestablishing himself as a practicing lawyer before the New York State Supreme Court. As Eisenberg notes of his legal practice during these years, quote, his, i.e., Burr's concern for women was manifest in his law practice. Widows and desperate housewives alike appealed to him for redress. He may have been, in fact, the very first American lawyer to specialize in family law. His duties included more than pleading a case. He counseled the women who came to him and gave charity to them. Burr would also use his legal prowess, quote, to keep one step ahead of his creditors 
and to appease them well enough that they never pressed for prison time. He would not have a time in the rest of his life, however, that he was not in debt. In February 1814, he petitioned the New York State Legislature for, quote, a land grant as compensation for his military service during the Revolution. The bill was defeated two months later. He would try unsuccessfully once more to get compensation from New York before turning to the federal government after a new law in the 1820s extended pension benefits. The most beneficial thing out of this campaign for compensation was a newfound friendship with Martin Van Buren. Mm. Though they had known each other since 1803, Van Buren became a champion in the state legislature for Burr's cause. As described by Eisenberg, quote, the two men had much in common. Van Buren had come to promote commercial republicanism and adopted a political style that openly embraced the machinery of parties. They worked together on several high-profile law cases, and Burr was a firm believer in legal positivism, a utilitarian approach to law and legislation. Both men rose in the Republican Party as outsiders, that is, without a powerful family faction to press their careers. They found the art of negotiation and compromise sensible. Rumors started that Van Buren was Burr's illegitimate son due to their resemblance to one another, oh boy. but there is no proof that this is in any way, shape, or form true. Though Burr was officially out of politics, this didn't stop him from expressing his discontent with the Madison administration's handling of the War of 1812. He reserved his harshest critique for James Monroe around the time that he was gearing up for a run for the presidency in 1816. Burr said that Monroe was, quote, naturally dull and stupid, extremely illiterate, indecisive, pusillanimous, and, of course, hypocritical. Oh, 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 and oh. Yeah. Beyond the success of Monroe in the election that year, more sad news came to Burr of the death of his son-in-law, Joseph Alston, at the age of 37 in September 1816. So again, death, 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 death. Burr continued his interest in Latin America and would become acquainted with revolutionary exiles in Philadelphia and New York in the latter part of the 18-teens. Most of his time, though, was spent with his legal practice. As described by Eisenberg, quote, he, i.e. Burr, acquired an almost legendary status as an old gentleman capable of astonishing much younger attorneys with his loftiest eloquence on points of law. I mean, he's been in the courtroom long enough. Yeah, he, he should have learned something by this point. Way around it, so. <laughs> Burr became close to the widowed Rachel Eden and her daughters, who, in addition to representing them in a complicated case of inheritance, he also moved them into his home. Burr also adopted two sons, Aaron Burr Colum, the son of a French woman who had immigrated to the U.S. in 1815, and Charles Burdett, who had been born in 1814. Burr also took in Luther Martin, one of the attorneys in his treason trial, when, quote, Martin suffered from a paralytic stroke in 1819, losing his intellectual rigor and his mental focus, and Burr cared for him in the last three years of his life. So he's taking in all these folks into his home. But he wasn't done adding to his family. On July 1st, 1833, the 77-year-old Burr married the 58-year-old Eliza Jumel in New York. As a wealthy widow, Eisenberg notes that, quote, theirs was a match that contained all the ingredients of a scandal. It's tough to get a true picture of who Jumel was due to the lack of primary sources, but it does seem like she came from a humble background 
and rose in society when she married a, quote, prosperous wine merchant who she had been the mistress of for several years before they wed in 1804. Ultimately, the Jumel's marriage became, quote, a business partnership. The couple spent many years apart, and after Eliza secured her husband's power of attorney, she took an active role overseeing his business interests in the United States. Stephen Jumel died in 1832, and Burr met the widowed Eliza that year while she was settling his estate. Burr's second marriage began well, and they spent their honeymoon visiting Burr's relatives in Connecticut, which also allowed him to check in on business matters in the area. Unfortunately, the relationship soon soured, and within six months, they were separated. Then a year later, Eliza sued for a divorce, charging Burr with adultery. And Burr countered with the same charge for her. Oh, more court. More court. Here we go. The divorce proceedings became a melee as, quote, both parties rounded up witnesses of questionable character to testify, and charges of perjury were made. As Eisenberg notes, quote, the adultery complaint was both necessary and ludicrous. It was virtually impossible to get a divorce in New York without proof of adultery. Though his marital situation was in shambles, in 1834, Burr finally received a pension from the federal government amounting to $3,300. This, however, was not enough to get him out of debt. In 1835, Burr prepared his will in which he recognized two daughters fathered with different mothers as heirs, the six-year-old Frances Ann and the two-year-old Elizabeth. Again from Eisenberg, in the course of his life, quote, he had adopted several children, among whom may have been his biological children, or they could have just as easily been orphans he took in. Finally, as the divorce proceedings dragged on, Burr gave in and, quote, agreed not to contest the divorce. But he did not admit to the charges. He also refused to pay any alimony. The Chancery Court finally ruled in the case and granted the divorce on September 14, 1836. Unfortunately for Burr, he had suffered a major stroke a few months prior, which led to his paralysis. And thus, on the same day that his divorce from Eliza Jumel was finalized, it was also the day he passed away in a boarding house on Staten Island at the age of 80. Good gosh. Burr was buried in Princeton, New Jersey, alongside his father. In terms of his legacy, as historian Nancy Eisenberg notes in her biography of Burr, prior to her work, he had, quote, been mishandled by students of history and textbook writers for almost two centuries. Rather than being approached from a historical lens, quote, Burr had been left chiefly in the hands of imaginative writers, popularizers of history, novelists, playwrights, producers of cheap gothic romances, and even a pornographer. Unlike many figures that we discuss in this series and the Seat at the Table series, rather than having towns, counties, and geographic features named after him, Burr is instead featured in fictional accounts. Just a few notable ones are as follows. Harriet Beecher Stowe included him in her 1859 work, The Minister's Wooing. Eudora Welty featured Burr in a short story entitled First Love about Burr's capture and trial for treason. Eisenberg describes that, quote, it is told from the perspective of a young deaf boy who, upon seeing Burr for the first time, cannot but react in sexual terms. He says he feels ravished. As the boy watched the crowd at Burr's trial in Mississippi, the courtroom, 
becomes a stage. Burr is a dazzling orator, a man of gestures, the embodiment of sexual energy. He was also included as a character in an episode titled The Alexander Hamilton Program on the Jack Benny Program as portrayed by Dennis Day. Gore Vidal wrote an entire volume of his Narratives of Empire series on him titled Burr, a novel, which was released in 1973, which is an excellent book for anyone who has not read it. In one of the Got Milk commercials in the 90s, a commercial directed by Michael Bay featured a historian obsessed with Aaron Burr. Hmm. PBS's American Experience did an episode about the Burr-Hamilton duel in 2000. And naturally, Burr is a pivotal character in Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton musical, which debuted in 2015. And in case you're wondering, the pornography was a work entitled The Amorous Intrigues and Adventures of Aaron Burr, published in 1861. Oh, Lord. It is readily available for anyone over the age of 18 who is interested. Okay. And that, my dear, Good grief. is the life of Aaron Burr. I feel like I need a drink. Just <laughs> good <laughs> night. That was just, wow. I'm surprised he made it to 80. He, he led quite the life. Yeah, he did. It's exhausting just thinking about it all. But now we do have to think about uh. it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> because we've got to score him, starting with the resume. So this round looks at the overall career and character of the vice president, and we can award up to 10 points maximum. So, Alex, what do you think about Aaron Burr's overall career? Wow. I don't... It's hard. It's just... Good grief. A victim of circumstance. He didn't do himself any favors, and I've said that before, but... I don't even know. I mean, wow. So this is definitely a case of an extreme rise and an extreme fall. fall. Exactly. You know, he rose up pretty quickly and he proved himself at times to be this able politician. Yeah. You know, he was he was thinking in a campaign mode that wouldn't be seen for decades. Mm. You know, he he was an innovator in that. But then once he finally got to the highest pinnacle, it all collapsed. Mm -hmm. It was awful. Well, I mean, I guess in a way, I don't know. I mean, trying to account for the, the meteoric rise and then fall uh, five. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of five too, because, you know, I mean, technically it was quite a career. Yeah. And the fact that he just, even despite the falls, he still kept finding his way, you know, was it a success? No, but he, he made it to vice president and there, you know, there was the real potential that he could have been president. Right. But he just didn't get there. Didn't and get his legacy, you know, is he didn't leave much to really speak of as a success, but it was still a good career in spite of all in spite of everything tragedies and just just reversals of fortune that just seemed to befall him. yeah you know continuously he kept rising up kept coming back up yeah yeah so i think i think i'm gonna go with a five as well okay and that gives him a 10 and and one of the things i, I also would like to say here 
you know, in terms of his service as vice president, you know, he is known as being somebody who really served in that role as president of the Senate very well. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when he gave his last address and left, we were, you know, in tears for, you know, minutes up to half an hour. Yeah. Obviously an impact. Yeah. And the fact that description that he brought order, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of chaotic. And he was like, no, we need to respect the Senate. So mm-hmm. that is a good legacy. Yes. That is something that we can yeah. speak to that was really good. So next, the campaign poster. So this round examines the physical appearance of the vice president in their official portrait or photograph. Okay. Let's so see it. this is a portrait by John Vanderlyn. It was from 1802. And so here is the campaign poster for Aaron Burr. Oh, my God. He kind of looks like a mortician. <laughs> uh, that's, ooh, that's not a most flattering campaign poster. So, and, and listeners of the podcast, if you see the cover art, that's what we're using for this. It's Burr and kind of the side profile. He has his hair in a queue behind. Slicked back, balding, background, balding, got like a white, I'm assuming ascot or some sort of, you know, mm-hmm. undergarment and then black. So it's just a very dark, <laughs> which kind of fits. Yeah. Burr. Yeah. This is what you would think of a burr, but is it really, does it connote some kind of leadership or it's more mysterious than it is, um, you know, emblematic of leadership to me. Yeah. So how much are we going to give here up to up to points up to 10 points? I'm I'm not a fan of this one. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to say four. Not a fan. Not a fan of it. Yeah. God awful, but it's certainly not, you know, as I said, emblematic of, of leadership and power and confidence. It's just kind of like, oh, OK. Yeah. I'll go. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you here wow i'm doing a four as well i mean it's definitely intriguing like there is this air of mysteriousness to it but it's also in some ways kind of bland and it's definitely not somebody that i would want as a leader no no definitely not definitely not so next up is our friend or foe round this round evaluates whether the vice president supported the work of the administration or undercut the administration's efforts, and we can award up to positive 10 points or deduct up to negative 10 points if we think that he was a foe. And here we go again. It's just like, you know, he didn't do himself any favors, but he certainly had a lot of just bad luck and just unfortunate circumstances. Mm-hmm. Zero. I'm going to go with a one just because. I think Burr tried okay. to be yeah. a friend to the administration and they wouldn't let him. Yeah, yeah. True. And Chill, of course, he killed Hamilton and then they're like, that's our guy. And he's like, really? Nail? Well, the fact that he had that meeting about the um, uh, filibuster right yeah. at the tail end, that's kind of what. Yeah. You know, that was uh, like, ooh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Not doing himself any favors here. So I'll I'll give him a one. So right now, Aaron Burr stands at 19 points. Mm. Now we come to the completely negative. And I think we've got a few things to discuss. 
because this is our drag on the ticket round. This round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the vice president, and it does not have to be during their tenure of office as vice president. We can deduct up to 10 points Mm -hmm. each. Aaron Burr is one of those names in American history that is completely associated and considered synonymous with scandal. Yes. But is that reputation deserved? Yes and no. I mean, again, it's he did not do himself any favors. I know he tried, but he certainly, again, the whole filibuster um, campaign, I just, that just left a bad taste in my mouth. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and say negative five. Negative five? Yeah. He certainly had some scandalous behavior. You know, he was reckless with his funds. He ended up in debt. We also have to bring to account, as mentioned, Mm -hmm. he did, he was somebody who enslaved people, even though it wasn't many, Mm -hmm. he did enslave people. Right. So that has to be taken into account. He skipped the country. (laughs) He... He literally fled the yeah. country. He killed somebody in a duel. He time and again had to go incognito because he was on the run. I don't think that he is the absolute devil that he was portrayed as by some, but he's definitely he definitely has some scandal there. Oh, yeah. So I am going to match your negative five. Wow. So that will take away 10 points, which leaves him at nine. So with, I think this is probably the most closely that we've scored together. I mean, there's only one point difference between. Yeah. On, you know, all of them. Well, so Burr has some opportunities to pick up a few more points before we're done. Tenure of office, the entire time that the vice president served, will we count it? He served for four years, served out his entire term. So he gets four points there. Hallelujah. He needs them. (laughs) Then some bonus points. So a bonus point is awarded for each election that the vice president's home state went for the ticket when the VP was at the bottom of the ticket. And technically, he was considered Jefferson's running mate in 1800. Right. So we're going to go ahead and and they did win New York. So we're going to go ahead and give him a point. Okay. He could earn a bonus point if he served in another lower public office, either appointed or elected, after his tenure as vice president. He did not. He did not. He did not. Not even close. He's too busy with that filibustering nonsense. The filibustering and his ladies and 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 (laughs) being on the run and being (laughs) in prison, being in prison, being in court. Hanging so, out with philosophers in England. Okay, you name it, he was doing it. Yeah. Anything but, but office. But not in public office. Right. A bonus point if the vice president served out their entire term as vice president. He did. He did. Okay. So he gets a point. Okay. But he did not become president, so he does not get that bonus point. He's mm-hmm. the first vice president we've discussed who didn't get that point. So we're at 15 points now? So now we are at 15 points. Yeah. That is his final total. Just for perspective... John Adams earned 41 points. Thomas Jefferson earned 22 points. So right now he is the lowest ranking vice president. As would be expected. But we still have a question to ask because points do not necessarily matter here. Alex, after all I've shared about Aaron Burr's life and career and what we've discussed, 
Do you think that this vice president is notable enough or impactful enough to preside from the Senate rostrum? Oh, my gosh. This is a hard one. This is a hard one. I mean, you know, he had that moment when he was leaving, when people finally recognized his respectability, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word. You know, that moment, I think, to me, other than his rise up to the VP, was his high point politically. But all the other stuff in between, I mean, man, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. And that's the thing. Like, this is an interesting life. This is an interesting life. People are still talking about and writing books about Aaron Burr. But impact. What did he really do? Right. And as vice president, you know, yes, he presided over the Senate. Yes, he he got some order there. He was well-respected but not enough to be renominated right as vice president he only served one term he his political career was in shambles at the end of his vice presidency so i guess i'm going to have to say no i i think i'm going to agree with you here i think that there's a lot to discuss and yes he's memorable but i don't know that he's one that we would want presiding from the Senate rostrum. Sorry, we're in the saddle. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and hand over the president's gavel to one of the ladies. Yeah. You know, they they can handle it, which he would have been okay with. Yeah. He would have been okay with a female vice president. And, you know, there again, that that whole component, you know, the fact that his 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 wife and some of his subsequent lovers were he considered intellectual equals or at least, you know. He didn't look at them as just play toys. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned he, him becoming one of the first, if not the first, lawyer for family law. I mean, mm-hmm. very interesting things. The whole, I mean, he, certainly a very interesting career and a pioneer in many respects. But presiding over the Senate rostrum? I don't think so. Okay. So, sorry, Burr. You are being sent to go back to the courtroom Pick a seat, any seat, depending on the day, who knows what role you're going to be in the courtroom. It's been fun learning about you. Ooh, it's been something, all right. But it is time to go ahead and close the book on you, and we will be back next time with George Clinton, not that George Clinton. P-Funk! <laughs> I'm already going to just give you the nickname that I'm given, and P-Funk. P-Funk. <laughs> Alex, I hope that you've enjoyed learning more about Aaron Burr and learning about just this this amazing character in American history. That's, to say the least, the character, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. And again, I mean, I at the end of the day, I do feel badly for him. Yeah. He had a lot of bad circumstances to navigate through. He, he, and he did his best in some of them, but he did not do himself any favors whatsoever in some of them. And I think ultimately that really kind of led to the general malaise that we talked about that was his life yeah for our listeners if you'd like to learn more about aaron burr i will have the sources used for this episode on the the page for this episode on the website presidenciespodcast.com there you can listen to past episodes of the podcast you can access uh, sources for learning about all the presidents 
And you can learn how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the podcast. There are many ways to do so, including but not limited to leaving a rating and review. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me via email, you can reach me at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media if you don't already. I'm available at Facebook, Mastodon, Post, and Blue Sky as Presidencies, on the formerly known as Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram and threads at Presidencies Podcast. Last but certainly not least, we want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you have enjoyed learning about Aaron Burr and all the vice presidents we've covered to date. Please join us next time for George Clinton. And, And until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.